This is the morning brief from the Economic Times. From being the first Indian jeweler to be featured on the Christie's catalog cover to having Kate Winslet adorn his pieces at the Oscars, Nirav Modi, which tours from Madison Avenue to Macau, was living a truly glittering life. But then fortunes turned and he went from being on the rich list to a most wanted list. Big hunt for India's biggest thief, Nirav Modi, is hotting up. More than 11,000 crores siphoned off one of India's biggest banks, the Punjab National Bank. This is the biggest corporate fraud that has taken place in India. It was now clear that all that glitter was just keeping the glare away from web of dummy companies, fraudulent documents and a scam bigger than ever seen before. From fugitives to failed kidnappings to a blame game and a potential asylum, the story has more twists and turns than the latest Friday release. This is the story of Nirav Modi. We get you the investigative insights. You know, Nirav Modi was actually investigated by other agencies also. Though he was being probed by the Income Tax Department and the DRI, that information wasn't shared with the other agencies. The behind-the-scenes buzz of bankers. We all missed the first sign of it. It all happened in one branch by one person who remained unnoticed. He was on the same desk for seven years and doing the same work. He was due for transfer twice and mysteriously both the times there was somebody in the bank who stopped it. And what could really happen next with Nirav Modi? Is he really coming home or is there a twist again? Nirav Modi is very likely to have applied for asylum. Nirav selected Fitzgerald in the appeal part of his case. He's known as the devil's advocate. He's actually considered to be one of the best extradition barristers. It's Tuesday, November 15th. I'm your host, Anupriya, and you're listening to the story of Nirav Modi, the flawed and fallen diamond magnet on The Morning Brief, brought to you by The Economic Times. Well, we first head to London, where all the action has been, not just the last week, but over the last six years between Vijay Malia to now Nirav Modi. Naomi Canton, journalist from the United Kingdom, who has been reporting all the happenings for Times of India, joins us now to give us the real picture and answer some tough questions. Is Nirav really coming back home or are there loopholes left? Naomi, thank you for joining us here on The Morning Brief. Oh, hello. Thank you very much for having me. Naomi, Nirav Modi's extradition has been held by the higher court in London in a remote order. Before we tackle what next, take us through what the judgment really said. Yes, so the judgment came on Wednesday in the administrative court of the High Court, told us that it was going to be a remote handdown, which means that you have to just contact the court and request the judgment to be emailed to you. It was obviously a very lengthy judgment by two High Court judges. And they had listened to Nirab's barrister predominantly arguing why the district judge in Westminster Magistrates Court had made a mistake in ordering his extradition and that, in fact, that should be overturned. And Edward Fitzgerald KC, the barrister for Nirav, he was actually only allowed to argue on two topics. One was the, the fact that Nirav could suffer torture and inhuman and degrading treatment in Arthur Road Jail in Mumbai. And the other one, what's called Section 91, which is that it would be oppressive 
or unjust to extradite him. And what the barrister did was said that that was because he was depressed and suicidal and therefore it would be very oppressive to send him to India. But the judges in their judgment went into great depth and detail about this and their judgment was focused mainly on the argument about suicide risk and depression. And they agreed he was depressed and suicidal and had had suicidal thoughts, but they didn't feel the suicidal thoughts were severe and they found his depression to be moderate. So they didn't find him to have um, a severe depression. And he didn't have psychotic symptoms, they said. And those that combined meant that he didn't quite reach the threshold needed to be judged that your mental condition is such that it would be oppressive to extradite you. Because there's, there's a particular threshold you have to meet, and it's actually based on case law, um, and it's called the Turner Proposition. So that was the finding. Another key element of the judgment was that they were really happy with the assurances given by the government of India, which were very detailed assurances about the kind of medical treatment he can access from Arthur Jail, including private treatment. And because of that, those off, uh, assurances offset the risks of him committing suicide, although they admitted that you can never guarantee you can prevent someone committing suicide, but that the assurances did, you know, the best possible job of doing that. I'm going to come and talk about a little bit more about the barrister that's been defending uh, Nirav Modi as well now, I mean, a bit. But I want to draw a comparison on this, the whole depression route, suicidal thoughts. It's something that has been used before to ward off extradition by high-profile cases, as was in the case of Assange's as well. Yes, that's right. So this was the exact argument Assange used. And ironically, he had the same barrister, Edward Fitzgerald. In fact, I don't know how familiar people in India are with the Sri and Dewani case. He was that British Indian who was accused of murdering his wife, was their honeymoon in South Africa. And then he went into a mental institution. So both Sri and Dewani and Julian Assange both uh, managed to get their extradition rejected on the grounds that they were heavily depressed and likely to commit suicide. So it has been used, and that's obviously why the barrister was was going down that route with Nirav Modi. And it, it was, you know, throughout the case from the very outset, this idea of him being depressed was brought up again and again. And then the depression got worse and worse and exacerbated by lockdown and the COVID pandemic. And then sort of towards the end, you know, he was heavily depressed and had been considering suicide. And that was the way the case progressed. But it didn't persuade the judges. And I did speak to a barrister about this. And he reckoned that one of the key factors is the assurances by the government of India. Because he was telling me that one of the problems with Assange and Dewani were that the judges were not satisfied with the assurances from the USA and South Africa. So I want to now come to the barrister in question, Mr. Fitzgerald. He's got a key nickname as well now. I mean, what can you tell us? Because there are a lot of common clients across the board uh, from the lot that have been asked for extradition from the Indian government. Yeah, he's actually considered to be one of the best extradition barristers in Britain. He's known as the devil's advocate. And he has earned a very good reputation for himself because he has acted in some very high profile cases. He acted in Laurie Love's case, the computer hacker that the US was seeking to extradite. And he got that extradition completely stopped. He also represented Jabin Motawala, who was said to be the CEO of the D company in Pakistan. And he had actually been caught in sting operation by the FBI trying to sell drugs to these FBI agents. So there was considerable evidence against him. But in that case, Edward Fitzgerald managed to get the extradition request withdrawn 
and Jabin Motiwala went back to Pakistan a free man. And in fact, Nirav selected Fitzgerald in the appeal part of his case. And he'd actually used Claire Montgomery in the Westminster Magistrates Court, which was the same barrister that Vijay Malia had used. And he obviously, as you know, Vijay Malia lost all his cases. So Nirav, on appeal, decided to switch to Fitzgerald. Which gets us to the next question now. I mean, what is the road ahead? Is it a sure shot homecoming for Nirav Modi or does he have any other routes at this point to appeal this? Yeah, it's very interesting. He's going to go down the same direction that Vijay Malia did because obviously the same um, happened to Vijay Malia. He lost his appeal in the high court. So the next step is to get a point of law of public importance certified by the high court that there is such a point of law of public importance in his case. And his barrister may well use the Turner proposition uh, for that. And then he has to get leave to appeal in the Supreme Court. That means permission to appeal. And he can apply for permission in the High Court or in the Supreme Court to get that. But if he doesn't get this public point of law of public importance certified, then in fact, that's the end of the road because the Supreme Court cannot hear his case. So that's going to be his first step. And then the next thing he can try if he fails at that is to get an injunction from the European Court of Human Rights, which is known as a Rule 39. And that would be him saying to them that there's an immediate risk of threat to his life or health in this jail in India, and they have to uh, stop his extradition immediately. And uh, that's something that Sanjeev Chawla tried uh, before he got extradited to India but his was rejected. And most of these requests are rejected, though a small number get through. So that would be his next step. And then uh, if that failed, he would actually have to get extradited within 28 days. However, in Vijay Malia's case, it did fail. Although Vijay Malia didn't apply for a Rule 39, he only tried the Supreme Court. He, in Vijay Malia's case, he didn't get the point of law of public importance certified. So then we were expecting him to be extradited within 28 days of that decision. And in fact, he hasn't gone back. So which brings me to the point, Naomi, about asylum. Has Neelam Modi applied for asylum? Would we know if he'd already applied for asylum? Are those applications public? Because we're not very clear on how these rules work in the United Kingdom. Because for Vijay Malia as well, it was only after his extradition orders were put through that we realized that he'd put in for an asylum application already. Yeah, the interesting thing is that the asylum application, even the Indian government wouldn't know about it. So in fact, it's very secret and the reporters wouldn't know about it. It's not public. And these are private hearings that happen under different tribunal altogether. Um, I think it's the Immigration and Asylum Tribunal and they they have their own judges and it's closed court. It's not open to the public. Even the judgments are private. They're not disclosed. So if somebody applies for asylum, no one knows about it. And if they get the asylum, no one knows about it either. So the Indian High Commission wouldn't know about it. What we do know is that every time we've inquired about it, we've been told that Vijay Malia hasn't gone back for legal reasons. And if I've tried to get asked more about that, barrister I spoke to said it's likely to be either asylum or it could be the civil cases that he's got going in the UK because he's got quite a few civil cases like his bankruptcy appeal and cases like that. It could be this because of those that he hasn't gone back. So we're not exactly sure why Vijay Malia hasn't gone back. Nirav Modi is very likely to have applied for asylum, I would say. And he may have applied already. You wouldn't necessarily wait till the final judgment comes and then put in your asylum application. You would probably have done it already 
like at, during the process after your initial extradition court hearing or something. But the asylum application can take years because there's lots of different layers of appeal. So it can drag on for quite some time. And if BJ Malia has applied, he could still be in the process. We don't know whether a decision would yet have been reached in his case. Naomi, I just want you to draw the comparisons and how these cases were very different. The, you know, the illustrious bad boy, billionaire Vijay Malia, which you would have had the opportunity to see him go in and out of court. But in neither more these cases, he's been in jail and then there was COVID. So there was video links and the case was quite behind the scenes. Compare the two cases for us. Well, Vijay Malia was great fun to cover as a journalist because he always turned up in a chauffeur-driven car with his girlfriend, uh, the one who had been um, an air hostess with Kingfisher Airlines. And they would always come together. Sometimes his son would come um, and he sort of turned up with shades on and, you know, dressed like a model. And he'd always have a little entourage of people carrying things for him. And he'd always sort of stand outside court and get his cigar out and his posh lighter and sort of strike his cigar and then we'd all surround him and then he'd start giving us little sound bites and at lunch BJ Malia it was very odd actually because he always used to go outside at lunch and then of course all the media would rush outside and then he'd be able to give us statements so I think he actually quite enjoyed the publicity and then at the end of the case it would be exactly the same so you know it was always high drama and great fun. Nirav Modi as you probably recall, he was actually found by the Daily Telegraph wearing that ostrich hide jacket, sort of wandering through the streets near Oxford Street. And they tried to interview him and he just kept saying no comments. And there's a video of it. And then he flags down a taxi. Can you please just confirm whether you've applied for political asylum? That's all I want to know. Can you confirm that? Sorry, no comment. Well, it, it was about a week or two after that that he got arrested opening a bank account in Metro Bank. And then he's been in custody since that moment. He was then brought to court the next day for his preliminary hearing. Uh, and they get asked, do you want to be extradited to India or not? And then they say no. And then it becomes an extradition hearing. And then he got taken to Wandsworth jail. So he then used to come in person from the jail. So he'd come in a prison van and then come up to the dock and stand there. I remember his first few hearings, he was really smartly dressed. He looked like the same guy, you know, like the, the diamond dealer that hangs out with celebrities. And then I think obviously because of COVID, it then became video links. And then he's only ever come on video links since then from prison. So we just sort of see him on video in the court and he sits there with all his papers. But over time, and as they started to talk about this depression that he had, he sort of grew a beard and he started to look much more disheveled. And he put on weight as well. And he didn't look the same as the initial NIRAP that used to come in person. And then they said he was taking antidepressants and things. But this was when he'd been living in this swanky apartment, just Oxford Street, which was where he was living when he was running this um, jewelry business called Diamond Holdings. And I remember there was this moment when the barrister spoke about him having a dog. And it was one of the reasons why he should get bailed, you know. And I remember he looked really upset when this dog got mentioned. Naomi, while we have you, I want to clarify something. There's a lot of speculation buzz around the new trade deal that's being signed between India and the UK. Will extradition be part of that trade deal? Will it be incorporated in some way? What are you picking up? Because as I understand that you do have some clarity on that. Yes, I have checked this out because it's often said on Twitter and else in social media that, you know, if the UK extradites Vijay Malia and Nirav Modi, then Prime Minister Modi will sign the trade deal within seconds. 
Uh, and that's just speculation on social media. It's not anything that is a fact. And when I checked it out, I was told that there was just no correlation at all. The, these extradition cases have no connection to the trade deal. They're not influencing the trade deal. And the trade deal has nothing to do with these two cases. And that's, that came from the Indian government. So, and I think that probably, you know, is the truth because it would be very odd if a single person was sort of held to ransom over this trade deal. And of course, in the UK, these cases are all going through the UK courts. So again, when the Indian public criticize the UK government for not extraditing these people, it's actually not the UK government that's making the decision. It's the judges and the court system. And we have a separation of powers and our, our judiciary is separate to the government. So it does, a lot of people try and bring it into the political sphere, but in fact, it, it's literally just going through our court system. Well, that settles the speculation on the trade deal, but uh, this case and the drama in this case for Nirav Modi far from over. Thank you, Naomi, for joining us here on The Morning Brief, and I'm sure we'll catch up with you soon as more twists and turns appear. Thank you. It's lovely chatting to you. Well, that was now and what could happen next. But where did it all start? We take you on a rewind to bring you back the full story of Nirav Modi. I recall that it was Valentine's Day 2018 and red was flashing all over the screens as India's second largest bank, Punjab National Bank or PNB, unearthed what would be the biggest scam faced by an Indian bank yet. 11,000 crores and counting with the main cast featuring fugitive Mama Bhanja duo, Nirav Modi and Mehul Choksi. What followed was complete pandemonium from billionaires on the run to a blame game between the RBI and the centre and bankers scrambling to assess the full extent of the hit and investigative agencies jumping into action but after the key accused had already taken off. And as many await a potential return of Nirav Modi, the Economic Times team gets you the ringside view of the scam. Joining us, Sangeeta Mehta, buzzing with everything to do with banking and Rashmi Rajput, who has a hawk's eye when it comes to investigations. Welcome, ladies. Thank you so much, Anupriya. Thank you for having me. Sangeeta, let's start with you. For the rest of us, it was a big day of disclosure on Valentine's Day. But behind the scenes, I'm sure it was a classically hectic breaking news day for the reporters. Tell us how it really all played out. Yeah, yeah. PNB announced about it first thing in the morning when the exchange opened. But it was quite a noisy day because we were just trying to figure out what is this all about? Like, what is an LOU? And we've never really looked into how LOU could be a scam. And you know, the sheer magnitude of the fraud, it was 1.77 billion, which in today's time, it will be roughly 14,000 crore. Back then, it was 11,300 crore. But then it was these things which really caught us. And we were calling banks to understand where, you know, where is this taking us and things like that. But we all missed the first sign of it. This was evolving and it was happening behind the scene, but we never realized because on 5th of Feb, the bank gave a very innocuous notice to the exchange that it suspected a fraud of 280 crore at one of its branch. That's it. And then the second line was even more interesting. It said that the fraud is reported to the regulatory agency and investigative authorities. So they didn't mention anything about FIR or the CBI involved or any such thing. It's only in hindsight we know that, you know, it was detected at least a month ahead of 14th of Feb. And, you know, in those days, I used to go to Brady House branch very regularly. I knew a lot of people out there. So personally, for me, it was quite a shock that these are the people whom I used to regularly interact and things like that. 
and the other side these banks were all blaming pnb pnb itself was kind of you know trying to water down the whole thing that oh we have recalled the loan from nirav modi everything is going to be okay and uh, by then nirav modi so, had already left the country nirav modi and mehul choksi both of them no right and we'll get to that timeline of how the accused were actually tipped off much before the agencies were which gets me to you rashmi now what did the investigative agencies do next 29th of january is when pnb uh, registered its official complaint with the cbi and uh, that time around it had pegged the scam to around 280 crores because the amount of lous that time issued uh, whatever they could find was amounting to 280 crores now, i'll just tell you one interesting anecdote you know around lous now what happened is during the course of the investigation the cbi went to raid they figured out that most of these lous which were original lous signed by gokula shetty which was one of the accused in the case now they were stacked at in the office of a very leading law firm in mumbai so the cbi had got this information they wanted to act on it fast because they thought that you know this was very important this crucial piece of evidence so when they went there there were no lous to be found because they had already moved because somebody had already informed the law firm and one of the accused was arrested by the cbi he subsequently had during the recording of the statement said that he actually had got three to four tempos outside that law firm and moved that with those lous from that law firm to a small uh, room in zaveri bazaar so subsequently the cbi went and raided it and then they found those original lous which was stacked in a small room of around like 200 square feet so think about it anupriya you had a scam of amounting to 14000 crore which is actually all the documents the main evidence was in a room which was less than 200 square feet so this is one of those you know interesting anecdotes of the investigation what was very important for both the cbi first complaint was registered by this pnb on the 29th of january the cbi in a day or two's time they registered an fir and subsequently the enforcement directorate stepped in and they registered a money laundering offence and then you had both the cbi and the ed probing the case of probing both these the nephew uncle duo and initially the scam which the pnb bank had said was around 280 crores it has now balloon and it is now around more than 23000 crores a rather large difference between the initial estimate of uh, the fraud and what it actually came out to be sangeeta take us through the nature of the fraud because that is critical in understanding how this actually all transpired so basically pnb issued letter of undertaking to this mama bhanja that is niravan mehul choksi's companies now what is a lou lou is like an implicit guarantee that if companies of nirav modi and mehul choksi doesn't pay then i as pnb take the responsibility to make good the difference or whatever is the you know gap now this nirav modi's company takes this letter goes to the hong kong branch of union bank so already the money is siphoned out of india when he goes to union bank right in hong kong and he tells them that transfer this 100 million to my x company which is probably his own personal account you know he gives an instruction to transfer it to some third account so what happens is the money moves from pnb india to hong kong branch of union bank and from the union bank hong kong branch it moves to his personal account union bank is paying this money to nirav modi because it's backed by lou which says that you know if there's a default pnb will pay 
PNB is a government-owned bank, Union Bank, government-owned bank. They both will trust each other, and this thing goes on. So Union Bank then makes a claim to PNB that you know Nirav Modi has raised this money from us. So you kind of make good the difference or make good that money. So PNB then credits hundred million to Union Bank. And you know the RBI rules are very clear. If there's a LOU which is backed by a bank, another Indian bank has to honor it. And you won't believe PNB issued LOI of two ninety three. Two ninety three LOIs were issued by PNB in this entire uh, eight years. You know that cycle of one seventy seven billion, and it remained unnoticed. I mean, it all happened in one branch. by one person remained unnoticed so sangeeta this is one person that we're talking about the primary person responsible at the desk at pnb it's quite amazing how much power and how consistently he was on just this desk to be able to execute all of these uh, lous for nirav modi and mehul choksi's company yeah 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 and and you know uh, even more surprising was that he was on the same desk for 7 years and doing the same work you know in a bank the policy is that every 3 years you you have to be transferred at least be transferred out of city or you know on a different bank branch kind of thing but in this 7 years he was due for transfer twice and mysteriously both the times there was somebody in the bank who stopped it and that still remains a mystery that how did that happen in fact after this episode where polaknath shetty remained in the branch there was a policy initiative that you know no person in any bank in any branch be it private psu whatever can be there for more than 3 years so sangeeta there are large amounts multiple uh, lous being signed off from a single desk no reconciliation and no red flags where does the tide turn uh, for the branch to realize something is wrong that is very interesting so what happened is as i said it was all done by one person his name was golaknath shetty and he was a very junior person deputy manager you know clerical uh, level so he issued these letters kind of he would roll uh, roll over these letters of lou till such time he retired in december 2018 and once he retired the new person came the new staff was deputed in his place by then in the month of december he had already issued some lous to nirav modi and mehul choksi companies now those lous had already reached the hong kong dubai london branches of indian banks and those branches came back to pnb in the month of january making a claim for that amount when they came the new staff said that uh, i am not authorized to give you because these lous are not backed by securities and there is some mismatch he raised this issue with his senior and then in the mid of january the entire bready house branch staff realized that there is a discrepancy in this entire thing and that's how the whole chain broke so even as pnb discovers it comes to the investigative agencies it's all too late because as the playbook learnt even during the previous cases even such as malia they had made their getaways before the agencies even came along in fact rashmi there were some stark revelations about how early these exits were planned by the likes of nirav modi and mehul choksi who in fact already had a citizenship of another country exactly exactly in, in this case also you know anupriya they had planned their escape well in advance uh, if our sources are to be believed this happened in around april of 2017 itself 
now what these people tell us is that around that time is when gokula shetty had for the first time told both nirav modi and mehul choksi that you know he is going to retire in january 2018 and uh, the new staff that would be taking over they might not be that cooperative with uh, him and with them and they might not be able to carry forward issuing the fraudulent lous so that is when both of them decided that this was going to be an end of their dream run so in around june of that year uh, nirav modi had already shifted his kids to to the us and on 1st january when gokuna shetty uh, retired on the same day both nirav modi his wife and uh, his brother in law they left the country and 5 days later you had mehul choksi leaving the country so they had actually planned their escape well in advance before the pnb bank could go and even register a case and uh, what the cbi had also found out that, that you know in the month of november two of its executives two of the officials who later both the agencies managed to bring them back they had also escaped so you know all this was happening in 2017 and then it was only in 2018 when there was a huge explosion happened when pnb finally figured out that you know there was this massive scam that was happening at the bradley house branch of dance and but it was too little too late for them Rashmi, you mentioned about Nirav Modi's wife and brother-in-law, but the other interesting uh, character in this entire plot was Mehul Choksi, who, as we mentioned, had already taken a valid citizenship and moved to another country. Where, according to the investigative agencies, Rashmi, does Mehul Choksi fit into this entire scheme of fraud? Now he is actually responsible for more than fifty percent of the scam. So you have around six thousand five hundred crore, which was pegged towards Nirav Modi. And seven thousand odd crores, uh, which was pegged towards Mehul Choksi. I'm talking about the initial days in May 2018, when the CBI had pegged the scam to around thirteen thousand five hundred crores. The amount attributed to Mehul Choksi is more than that of Nirav Modi. Now, in case of Mehul Choksi, what also happened is somewhere in May of 2018, there was this uh, spar between the agencies because Antigua, the country, came out saying that Mehul Choksi is their resident. and that's when the indian agencies were trying to figure out that how did he manage to get the citizenship so then you had a spa that happened between the mea and the mumbai police where the mea was saying that the mumbai police gave him something called as the pcc which is the verification the police verification certificate based on which the antica government had issued the uh, citizenship to him and the mumbai police said that you know when we had done a verification in 2017 there was no case against him so how can we not give him a clearance certificate so there was just so many things that were happening and they figured out that actually he was he had done this all this activity of getting the citizenship happened in 2017 itself and he managed to do it so bio choksi a he got the citizenship and then later subsequently he claims now that there was an attempt by the government to call so kidnap him that's what i want to come to you <laughs> a lot of our listeners you know want to really know because we've read about it mehul choksi after ages came back on air to talk about being uh-huh. you know distressed so what can you tell us about uh, the very famous spoiled kidnapping rashmi okay the allegation that mehul choksi had leveled was that he was kidnapped by the indian government and that you know there were these attempts to bring him back the government was trying to bring him but take him back to india now those are allegations right now we won't be able to substantiate whether that really happened and whether that was and failed attempt by the indian agencies but uh, he has registered a case of claiming that he is he was kidnapped by the indian agencies so 
that is where it stands officially but if you see in the case itself there are a lot of intriguing factors because he went missing then his wife registered a complaint and then he was uh, found in another country dominica and then subsequently dominica also dropped the charges against him and then now he plans to even register a case of kidnapping so it is uh, it, it it's very interesting about how things work in the caribbean island so now by this point the main cast and crew of the scam have moved overseas sangeeta this brought about a big back and forth between the center and the gatekeeper of the banks the rbi i recall from the late arun jaitley to then very suddenly vocal urjit patel as well yeah so yeah see uh, basically the question was who will foot the bill na it was a huge amount 12000 crore that had to be provided otherwise the bank will collapse finance ministry kind of raised this issue that you know the rbi was a gatekeeper as you correctly said that they didn't kind of regulate banks properly and then i have this like you know very interesting uh, comment which uh, i just wanted to read out uh, from uh, a speech that uh, arun jaitley made back then that uh, he said that we must always remember that regulators have a very important function they ultimately decide the rules of the game and they must be the third eye but unfortunately in indian system it is we politicians who are accountable and not the regulators now this was a very very provocative statement from our arun jaitley and then it was very natural that uh, urjit patel will retort na and then he gave his famous speech that um, success has many fathers but failures have none i mean if you recollect where he said that rbi should be given powers to regulate psu banks as they regulate private banks and of course then 6 months later he he resigned as you would collect december yeah. ujit patel put in his papers but rashmi as the fingers are being pointed between the center and the rbi there's also much to be said between what was happening the investigative agencies in 2017 as early as 2017 nirav moti was already being probed by the income tax department and yet the asymmetrical information between agencies is what aided the release or the movement of the likes of nirav modi and uh, mehul choksi share with us what was happening behind the scenes and also kind of the moments that have stuck with you as you've covered this massive case there were a lot of uh... interesting i would say so to say milestone kind of while you cover the case you know nirav modi was actually investigated by other agencies also income tax department was investigating him the dri was investigating him i remember when he used to go to the dri office he used to carry his mineral water and uh, he was very particular about uh, drinking only that particular brand of water and uh, he was very like, well dressed and you know it was very difficult to say that this person is later going to become the face of a, a white collar offense in india though he was being probed by the income tax department and the dri that information wasn't shared with the other agencies so what actually the nirav modi case did was that you know it has brought many of the agencies together so now you have a lot of coordination that happened between the agencies Sangeeta Rashmi says that the agencies have learned a lesson and have been better at sharing information. But has anything changed on the regulation and supervision part when it comes to PSU banks and bankers in general? Have things changed on the ground or are we still susceptible to hear headlines like this once again? This particular thing gap is more or less bridged. Core banking is linked to SWIFT and there is a regular uh, 
risk-based supervision, which is an online, and then RBI has started this Krillic system where each bank has access to how much exposure other banks in the system has to a particular company. But it's not fully watertight as yet because RBI still doesn't have that kind of regulatory powers. RBI cannot supersede the board of PSUs. RBI cannot even remove the MD of a bank, you know, PSU bank. He can't even say that, you know, uh, that this person is not fit to run the PSU bank. But point is that we have improved, but there is a lot of room yet, a lot of room uh, to get better. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Sangeeta and Rashmi, for your time. And I'm sure uh, this case is far from over, as they say, picture abhi baki hai. So more twists and turns still expected in the Nirav Modi saga. I always will have sleepless nights, but uh, we will move forward. That was Nirav Modi over six years ago, talking to the BBC about having sleepless nights over massive expansion. And I'm sure he continues to have sleepless nights, but for very different reasons. The scam exposed cracks in information sharing, in supervision and also disclosures. But as Naomi pointed out, it may be too early to plan a homecoming for the flawed and fallen diamond magnet Nirav Modi. With that, I, your host Anupriya, am signing off on this edition of The Morning Brief brought to you by The Economic Times. A big thanks to the team that helped put this together, our producer Sumit Pandey, sound engineer Indriel Patacharji, and a special shout-out to the team at BCS Ragasur for the rocking signature tune we debuted today. Executive producers for TMB, Anirban Chaudhary, Arujit Berman, and yours truly. Do follow us to get notified when our episode drops next, which is every week, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. It promises to be an action-packed week ahead. Thank you for tuning in.